Father God, would you please open our eyes and ears and minds this morning? Would you give us hearts that are ready to understand? Would you show us yourself and show us what we need to know? And would we leave here delighting in you? Amen. There is a, a common pattern in advertising. There's that idea that the, the product that they want you to buy is so good that you will never want any other alternative. I'm sure you can think of examples. Think of the washing powder. That one, and they show you the garments washed with their version. And next to it, that washed with an unnamed competitor. And theirs makes your whites so clean and bright that everything else is just beige by comparison. Or there's the insurance deal, maybe with fluffy animals or something, and they've got such good perks, you'd be crazy to go with anyone else. Or this one confuses me, the breakfast cereal, which will literally drive you mad with longing. So you'll go to incredible lengths for your next bowlful. Or that, that tube of pleasingly shaped potato crisps that once opened, you will actually not be able to avoid eating them all. Once you pop, you cannot stop. That may be the title of this sermon audio. After a few legal cases, advertisers have to be careful now in what they claim. But essentially, the heart of Paul's message in this letter to the Galatians is the same thing. He wants them to know that what they have in Christ Jesus, the gospel message that they've received, is far better than anything else on offer. It would be madness to go back to what they had before. So from the book of Acts and the letter so far, we, we know that this letter was written to a set of churches in modern-day Turkey. And Paul and his co-workers had traveled through the area a few times and they'd taught the good news about Jesus and people had heard the message with joy. They had welcomed Paul and his fellows in with such love that he, he says in this passage, they would have torn out their eyes for him. Weird. But the churches had taken root. They'd begun to be established. And Paul and his team had then moved on to plant other churches. But it seems that later, maybe years later, although these Galatian churches were primarily Gentile, non-Jews, some new teachers and new leaders had arisen or come in from outside. And these guys are counseling that to be proper believers, the Galatians need to look more Jewish. That probably means holding to a certain calendar of special days and celebrations. It probably means moving towards ceremonial, clean food. It probably means expecting male believers to be circumcised and for believers to start to separate themselves from non-believers around them. Perhaps these teachers have been saying something like this. Guys, it's, it's great that you've started out in Christianity in discipleship of Jesus. That's really exciting as a first step. Now, if you want to grow up in faith, you need to start being like us. 
Follow the traditional Jewish religious laws so that you're living in a pure way like us. Obey the law of Moses. A rabbi like Jesus would want you to do that. It's time to be a mature, grown-up believer. Come on. And Paul has been outraged by this. He is terrified for the churches in Galatia that he helped to plant, that he loves like a parent. Because he knows to require them to follow the law of Moses as an add-on to the promise of Christ is to lead away from what they've got. It's to lead them away from depending only on the grace of Christ. It undermines their promise. So in chapter 3, verses 26 to 27, he tells them, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized have clothed yourself with Christ. It's done. If they're baptized believers, there is nothing more, no greater status to add to it. They are already, as he says in chapter 3, verse 29, heirs of the promise to Abraham. And throughout chapter 3, he's shown them how even, the, even through the Old Testament, the patriarch Abraham lived by faith, not by obedience to law. And that the inheritance of God's people only came through God's gracious promise, never by upholding law. In fact, as Matt was showing us a couple of weeks ago, the promise to Abraham came centuries after. So from the laws to Moses came centuries after the promise to Abraham. The law was only a postscript. It was a hard lesson that Israel needed to learn, that they could not gain righteousness that way. Rather, chapter 3, verse 22. In the law, Scripture bound them up like slaves under the control of sin. And we saw last week where Paul is going with this. To live by faith, Paul says. To be a disciple of Jesus is no longer to be a slave to laws and regulation. To live by faith is to be the child and heir of God's household. To be a disciple of Jesus is, from chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, to have the Spirit of God himself sent into their hearts, calling out on their behalf to their Father. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege and joy we are called to. Now, in our passage today, it gets weird. We get this strange stuff about Hagar and Sarah and mountains and covenants. But really, Paul is just continuing to flesh out the same argument. And as he does it, he uses an incredible picture from Israel's history. And he shows them what it means to be children of promise. The status that they hold in God's eyes is so much better than what's being offered by the false teachers. And this is all leading up to chapter 5, verse 1, where our reading ended. It's the, the linchpin verse of Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Like the advertisers, Paul wants them to see what they're choosing between. 
the freedom of promise in Christ or slavery to law and regulation. He wants them to see how incomparable the options are and he wants them to choose wisely. So this morning, if we leave here with one thing in our minds, I hope it is wonder and rejoicing at what we have in Jesus. Let's look into it then. I think our passage falls into two natural chunks. So verses 8 to 20, Paul tells them to look at their leaders and where they lead. And then in verse 21 to 31, he tells them to look at their covenants and what they promise. So verses 8 to 20, look at your leaders and where they're leading. There is a contrast in this section between the way they were before they received the news about Jesus and the way they are after. There's a contrast between those like Paul who brought the gospel to them and the teachers they're now beginning to listen to. To see that, last week Matt ended up showing us how wonderful the Galatian status was in Jesus. So chapter 4, verse 6. Because you're his sons, God's sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, So you are no longer slaves, but God's children. He's made you his heirs. And now in verse 8, Paul reminds them what it was like before. Formerly, you were slaves, not heirs. Slaves to those who by nature were not gods. Pagan idols and statues and cults. Verse 9, considering what you have now in Jesus, do you really want to go back to that? Do you really want to go back to those weak and miserable forces? A few weeks ago, Dan compared the Galatians' old model of religion, their pagan religions, to a vending machine. Put in the right behaviours, follow the right rules, sacrifice the right things, maybe you'll get out what you need. That was very much what they'd come from. But Paul's been saying it's also the shape of the Jewish law that they're moving towards. So in verses 8 to 10, he says that they're going backwards, back towards keeping a special calendar. And he's probably referring to the Jewish religious year of Sabbaths and Passover and other festivals. Those were all good things. And the festivals expressed what it meant to be part of the nation of Israel, part of God's promise. Keep these celebrations and you're in, break them and you're out. Your observance decides which way you go. And by the way, here are the things you need to eat and not eat. And the sacrifices you need to make to deal with your failures. And the types of clothes you should wear and the types of people you should avoid. And and it's the vending machine of religion. Put in the right behavior. Get out the right status. But there's no security to it. You need to keep putting in more and more. It's like a treadmill. It it wears you out, but you never get anywhere. Is that what they want to be led towards? And, And it's not just that their choice is illogical. You can see Paul's fear and concern through this passage. He writes like an anxious mother, terrified that her children are going astray. 
Verse 11, I fear for you that I've wasted my efforts. Verse 12, I plead with you. Verses 19 to 20, my dear children, for whom I'm in the pains of childbirth, once again, I wish I could be with you. I'm perplexed and confused about you. And I think he's writing to remind them of how much he loves them and how much they loved him. How they received him when he was in weakness and welcomed him and the gospel message of Jesus and were zealous for him and loved him like a parent. And it's the language of family love. As he's writing to fellow heirs, fellow children of God. It's not the master-slave language of law. Look at your leaders, Galatians, and where they're leading. Who do you want to follow? Don't you want to be in the family with Paul? Or or do you want the other guys? Look, Look at what he's got to say about them. Verse 17. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. They are leaders who are trying to build up a following for themselves. Maybe there's a career to be made. Winning Christians back to the Jewish synagogue could bring prestige. Or maybe there's an income to be had by winning these churches as their disciples. Or maybe... They just relish the status of leadership. But as they build their following, they will load the Galatians down with a yoke of slavery, a fruitless and hopeless vending machine treadmill religion. Look at your leaders and where they're leading, Paul says. Which do you want? What's this for us? We've remarked before in this series that few of us will be tempted to build Old Testament law into church culture. That was a particular struggle for the early church for that time, as they began to understand the ways that they were and weren't a continuation of Old Testament Israel. But there are all kinds of ways we might run into issues like this in our church culture, so maybe there are challenges It's so easy for us to see our brand of Christianity as the real deal. And so when we encounter people from other nations or languages or cultures or social classes or just other church traditions, how much do we expect them just to conform to our patterns before we really recognize them as Christian brothers and sisters? Do we look down on brothers and sisters who are less literate or more emotionally uh, versatile or posher or less middle class? What would Paul say to that? Perhaps there's a challenge of how we think about our church leaders and a deep challenge to those of us in leadership. Are we looking for leaders who point us only towards Jesus, who rejoice in him, Or are we too impressed by worldly things and charisma and followers or particular giftings? Or maybe there's a challenge as well for how we accept leadership and direction from the culture around us. So for every generation, on on the difficult issues of the day, they, they change from decade to decade, but on those difficult issues, is our picture of what goodness looks like 
determined by the world's expectations around us. If it is, then that will be a yoke of slavery. We will never meet the demand. We'll never find our own way to rightness. Our world is confused. Instead, is our picture of goodness and the culture we strive to nurture in our churches determined by the picture of God's good plan revealed in Jesus and scripture and creation? What do we hold to? What do we long for? And that's all fine. As a little bit of application, I think there is a challenge to vigilance here. But I think much more. The focus of Paul's letter is that advertised desire, advertiser's desire that the Galatians would open their eyes and see what they have in Jesus. Having tasted that, how could they ever want to go back? That's what Paul's asking. Brothers and sisters, more than worrying about where we're out of step with the world, we need to rejoice at where we're in step with Jesus. Can we keep our eyes and focus on him and the gift that we have in him? Can we follow those who point us towards him and choose them as our leaders? Do we dwell on him enough, together or independently, and give thanks and praise and rejoice in worship as we stand firm in him? Friends, if you have recognized your need for help, if you have seen the wrongness in your life and wanted to be rid of it and to change, if you have clung to Jesus and trusted in him, then he is generous and kind and wise and good and he will never fail you. He has redeemed you by his blood. He has won you so that the Father looks on you as a son or daughter. He has sent the spirit of the living God into your heart that you will be an heir of his kingdom. If we've tasted that, surely any other promise is like dry ashes in our mouths. That's what Paul wants the Galatians to know, so that they choose wisely. That's what we need to have in our heads. Let's delight in Christ. That's verses 8 to 20. Look at your leaders and where they lead you. Verses 21 to 31, look at your covenants and what they promise. And, and here, Paul expands again on his theme. It's worth saying that this section about Hagar and Sarah is not a comment on other religions. It's worth saying, particularly, it's not about Islam, where Hagar's son Ishmael is significant. This letter was written centuries before the rise of Islam. And, and Paul's focus here is actually on Judaism. Secondly, it's worth saying that what he's saying here does not condone dysfunctional relationships we see through Genesis. The story of Hagar and Abraham and Sarah is one of several heartbreaking episodes in Genesis, which make it really clear. Abraham's family line is messed up. And yet, amazingly, in generous mercy, the Lord chose and used that family for his purposes. There's a reassurance there for those of us with our own 
broken family dynamics. In these verses, Paul isn't criticizing Hagar or commending Abraham and Sarah. What he's doing is actually giving a surprising criticism of Jewish legalism. Look at verse 22. It's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born as the result of human effort, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. You you can read this story. It's spread through Genesis chapters 12, 16, 21 and onwards. God had made a covenant promise to Abraham to bless him, to bless the world through him. And all of Israel traces their descent back to that, to Abraham. It's through him that they inherit this promise of God. It's through him they find their identity and their security in God's promise. It's hard for us here in Britain, thousands of years later, it's hard for us to understand how important and how defining that descent from Abraham was. This is probably at the heart of the false teacher's thinking. Because if God's covenant promises were given to that family, then to accept Jesus and receive God's promise, surely we've got to buy into that family, the law of Moses that goes with it. But the thing is, Abraham and his wife Sarah were really old. They knew they were past their years of fertility. And time kept passing. And the promise was looking shaky. So in Genesis 16, Sarah, aged about 75, says, The Lord is not giving me children. So let me send my servant Hagar to my husband instead. I can build a family through her. This is one of the patterns of dysfunctionality which is repeated through Genesis. People keep trying to manipulate inheritance. We, We see the flaws in God's people. We see their need for help. Abraham goes along with the plan. Hagar has a son, Ishmael, and predictably tension and friction arise in the family. Their human effort at solving their problems sends things awry and it has ugly consequences. Maybe read that story this week and reflect on it. It's 14 years later that God works his promise out. Sarah becomes pregnant. Isaac is born. And the friction in the family, the hangover of their mistake, results in Hagar and Ishmael being exiled. Pretty unfairly. Although God generously blesses them anyway. But what Paul's pointing us to is that God's purpose was to be worked out not by human effort, but by his miraculous provision of a promised son, a miracle baby, a pattern that we see through scripture in Isaac or Joseph or Samuel or John the Baptist or Jesus. And so the descent of Israel is through Sarah and the child of promise not through Hagar and the child of Sarah and Abraham's foolish plans and efforts. 
So here in Galatians verse 24 and 25, Paul makes this shocking comparison. He says it's Hagar that represents the Old Testament law. The jewel in the crown of Israel's tradition, the law given to Moses at Sinai, Paul says it's all about achieving righteousness by human effort. But the descendants of the slave woman were the ones to be sent out. Paul's argument through the letter is coming to a head here. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, he reminded them Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Whereas chapter 3, verse 10, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Because to live with God by the law, you have to fulfill it perfectly. Good luck. So these other teachers, they're coming in and they're encouraging the Galatians to supplement the gospel with legal requirements and circumcision and special diets and special days. And Paul is saying to the Galatians that to follow them is to follow human effort and count themselves out of the promise of God. These teachers, they're leading to the wrong covenant. They're leading out of Abraham. Is that what you want, Galatians? In fact, the warmth of God's love has never been earned by law. Look, he says in verse 21, it's Sarah's son. It's the longed-for child who could only have come through a miracle to a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. It's through this child of promise that Israel is descended. That pattern repeated again and again, even up to Jesus, the long-promised child, provided by God's power for the good of God's people. And again, I think the point isn't so much a challenge to be vigilant against false teaching as for the Galatians to understand what they have. So verse 27, Paul quotes Isaiah, and it's a beautiful passage which shows God's heart to the nation of Israel at a time when they seemed broken, hopeless. And God speaks to them like they're a barren widow. And yet he speaks to them with love and promise. Isaiah was writing to a nation deep in shame and failure with nothing left to commend them, but he goes on to tell them to open up their tent in pride and hospitality, pin back the tent flaps, expand to left and right, and rejoice because God loves them like a doting husband. Not because they've earned it, but because of his gracious promise. Verse 28, Galatians you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. What more do you need to earn the Father's love? When you've tasted the joy of God's free gospel, how can you go back to slavery and law? Know what you've got. Choose wisely. It is for freedom Christ has set you free. Magdalene Road Church, what do you need to do to be good? To be safe, to be right with God? What more do you need to do to be respectful, respectable? 
or for your failings and mistakes and the hurts that you've caused to be covered over and forgotten and forgiven. Modern Road Church, you are already children of God's promise. Do you know how deeply and wonderfully our Father loves you? And how he dotes on you like a smitten daddy or an ardent bridegroom? Let me finish by reading that passage from Isaiah. And as I do, realize that this is only a portion, a snippet of how the Father thinks of you his rescued, redeemed, beloved children of promise. If this is the security and status we have in Jesus, what else do we need? Isaiah 54 says this, Sing, barren woman, you who have never born a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess the nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the Lord of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it won't be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to work havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says about his love for you, his people. 
Amen.